Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. This Encore Podcast was originally posted March 17, 2016. Hanya Yanagihara's 2015 novel, A Little Life, has made a huge splash in the literary world. The story of a group of friends in New York, this long narrative, received terrific reviews and was one of six finalists for the prestigious Man Booker Prize. This interview was recorded on February 22, 2016. Hanya Yanagahara is the deputy editor of T Magazine, which is the style magazine of the New York Times, wrote for Condé Nast Traveler, and before that was a publicist, born in L.A. Were you raised in Hawaii at all? I was raised in Hawaii. We lived there for a little bit when I was a kid, and then again, I finished up high school there. The family had been living in Texas, and I just decided I couldn't take Texas anymore. And I was lucky that my parents let me go back to Hawaii. But my parents are from Honolulu, my grandparents, and my great-grandparents as well. This particular book, A Little Life, very big book, uh, over 700 pages, and it deals at the beginning, at least, with four young men, later kind of contracts into the story of one of them, set in New York. You wrote a novel. As you said before we went on the air, it went nowhere. (laughs) Though got very good reviews. And then you're searching around. What brought you to the story of Jude St. Francis and his friends set in New York? It was a few things. You know, I'd always had this character in my head of someone who would never get better. And I kind of thought, what if you upended the narrative tension of a typical naturalistic novel, which this book sort of is and sort of isn't, in which the character begins at point A and ends at point Z, and there is some sort of typically, but not always, some sort of emotional growth or or understanding that the protagonist reaches. And I thought, what if the character started off at A and tried and tried and tried and ended at A as well? What would be the narrative tension of the book, and how could you really make it thrilling for the reader? So that was the first sort of idea and the textual idea of the book. But I also wanted to, and I didn't really realize this until I began writing, sort of write an homage to the way that my friends and I live now. You know, none of us are married among my close friends. None of us have children. And the adulthood that we lead is sort of seen as a not quite adulthood, a liminal stage between childhood and adulthood. And yet it is the way that many of us in cities do live. And it is a perfectly I think, acceptable and legitimate form of adulthood. In that sense, I do consider the book in its own way a political book. It's not a sort of life that I see depicted in fiction that much, and I wanted to make it for me and my friends, actually. The main characters are four men. You're a woman. And of the four men, two, possibly three, possibly two, depending upon what you're looking at, are gay. It's multicultural. Two of the characters are African-American then their friends are Asian and all sorts of different people. Right. So it is that. What struck me in reading A Little Life, though, beyond all of the stories within it, which are very intense, I guess you'd call them, the book takes place over several decades. 
yet it seems to start in around 2016 and end in around 2016. (laughs) I guess that was absolutely deliberate. Yes. One of the first decisions I made about this book, the first I made was the structure, and I knew exactly how it would unfold. But I also wanted it to have the sort of quality of a fairy tale. And this book is really about the marriage of two very different genres. It's about the contemporary naturalistic novel, and it's the fairy tale. And in a lot of the absences in this book, the absence of history, the absence of historical events, the absence of parents, you know, the absence of sort of redemption, the absence of happiness to some extent, the suffering of a child, you know, the motherlessness that runs throughout the book are all barred from the fairy tale. And then, of course, the way the characters think and move, how they're educated, what they're, they feel entitled to, that's all from the contemporary naturalistic novel. But when you remove time from a book, when you remove historical markers, what you effectively do is you trap the reader in a sort of... Um, vacuum-sealed container in which the only world they have to concentrate on is the emotional life of these four characters. And it is, I hope, what gives the book a sense of intimacy, but equally I hope it gives the book a sense of claustrophobia. But I wanted the reader to feel really lost in the book, you know, so another decision I made was not having any space breaks. So once you enter one of the sections of the book, you have to basically finish that section. There's no pause for the reader. And so I wanted it to feel immersive. I wanted the reader to feel a little bit like a lobster, you know, when you put a lobster in a pot and you turn the heat up slowly and the lobster starts dying before it even knows it. And I wanted the reader to feel that same sense of a very slow drown. Is that the reason why the book is written present tense? Yes. I mean, it goes into the past, which is all past tense. Yes. But the present as it's happening is all present tense. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to have time move at different speeds throughout this book. So there is sometimes a sense that you're moving very quickly, and sometimes time becomes very elastic and slow in this book. As much as I wanted to play with the idea of not having historical markers, I wanted to play with how the reader experiences time in a novel itself. And this book is inconsistent in how it does that. Time doesn't really tick out at a steady pace as if by a metronome, Um, depending on the section you're in, depending which character is really narrating the scene, it slows or or it quickens. One of the major characters, Willem, is an actor, and he is in films, and he's traveling to films, but then the film sometimes could be released years later. So there's a complete loss as to the time frame just in terms of Willem's films. Was that deliberate as well? Sort of. There are some markers. The book is very much marked by seasons and certain holidays. So Thanksgiving is one of them. Birthdays are another. And that's really how I chose to mark the passing of time and of years. Uh, There are, you know, some references. In the first five sections, four sections, it skips ahead every five years. There's seven sections in the book. In the first four, you're delivered five years into the future. And then in section five, it starts slowing down a little bit. When I made out a sort of sketch of where this book was going to begin and how it was going to end, I would just call it year one, two, three, four, five. I couldn't give any dates to it, which in a strange way is a much stricter way of thinking about the book, but also allows you obviously a lot more fluidity. Hanya Yanagahara, were you able to say a marker on, okay, Willem's filming of this movie is here. I pretty much knew it. It's not all in the book, but I did have all of those details plotted out. So, you know, when he would finish shooting or if he was on stage, how long that run would be, when he would begin rehearsals, when his contract would be up. So I I was able to, and you're right, time is marked through his activities as well. 
but it also has to tie in with the marriages and divorces of their friends, who was living where, when. Right. So you had a chart that told you all that. I just had a Microsoft Word document and, <laughs> um, and, and just did it by number of years that the book covered, but without naming any of the years specifically. You know, I think there are little hints, if the reader's looking for them, about when the action begins. There's a scene in the first part of the book where the characters are all at JB's co-worker's parents' apartment and the parents collect a type of art that you would really find fashionable in sort of the early aughts. It's a small and probably to most people meaningless reference, but if you are in the art world and you really kind of track these things, you would understand where that book begins. So it ends way in the future in that yeah, sense. Yes, but I hesitate to put a name on it. You know, when I was when I was in copy editing, of course, the Whitney Museum hadn't moved downtown yet in the life of this book it has. So it did project into the future, but when you start doing that, it becomes tricky. For example, I mean, these characters should all be texting a lot more, right. but texting is not a satisfying literary device. And so I jettison that. These are people who talk on phones. I figured it began around 2000, but then it yeah. got really vague because they all have cell phones, they all have computers, right. they all have email from the start, right? which kind of sets it within the last 15 years it has right. to. Right. And then you go on from there. Right. But I noticed that there's very little relationship to popular music. In fact, there's there's none. There's no relationship to real films. Right. Certainly no relation to politics. Right. And that's all to bring it outside so that all we can do is focus in on Jude. Right. The only cultural name brands there are, if you were, are artists' names. That was a deliberate choice. And I don't want to say that visual art has more longevity. It doesn't necessarily. But in these characters' lives, I thought it would be a, an appropriate cultural touch point for them. Are the hotels and restaurants real or are those fictional too? They're fictional, most of them. Some <laughs> of them are based on real things, but they have their fictional names. Is there a Lisbon Art Street? There is a Lisbon Art Street. It's one of these streets that, you know, when I was new to New York and would walk around every weekend, very much like Jude does in the second part of the book, I came across the street and it was such a strange little, almost an alleyway. It's two blocks long. It's best known because there's a big post office, the big Southern um, Manhattan Post Office Depot is on this block and there's a fire station and that's about it. And it's one of those sort of forgotten areas that's resisted gentrification until now. And now it's getting its first boutiques and, and high-end you know, condos. It's literally in shadow because it's just south of Canal and then there's the bulwark of the, um, of the post office. And so it's always sort of cool and dim and it does really feel when you walk down it like you're entering some sort of enchanted forest, albeit, you know, of, of cement and concrete. How did you find it? Just from wandering. When I walked down it, I thought, God, this is such a strange... When you're walking down it, you think, I must be the only one who knows about this street. And of course, it's not true. But it's not that popular a thoroughfare. So chances are, even now, when you walk down it, you'll be the only one walking down it. You know, just one block north is Canal Street with all of its tumult and, and busyness. Hanya Yanagahara, what the book really is about is abuse. The character of Jude St. Francis, who becomes the main character as the book goes on, spent his entire early life being abused. We know this early on. The details get filled in later. Everything he does is in reference to that. And I understand that on some level, you created this character almost as the other half of a conversation with the protagonist of the people in the trees who's an abuser. Is that correct? 
Yes. When I turned in this manuscript, you know, my editor said, so, you know, what's the big deal? Why are you so interested in this topic? And I suppose it's because it's a, it's the ultimate abuse of power. When you're an adult, your only responsibility is to not try and, and, and abuse the power that you have over a child. That's it. And people do it successfully or not, but it's when they do it perhaps intentionally or without thinking that it becomes dangerous. It wasn't exactly written as a response to that book, but it is, I suppose, a cousin to it. You know, in that book, that book is based on the life of a very well-known scientist whose accomplishments and, and brilliance was, in the end, overshadowed by the fact that he did abuse several of his sons, and that has become, in many circles, his legacy. And in that book, you never hear from the son himself. You only hear from from the protagonist, who's the doctor. And I do think that abuse can really ruin people. I mean, it doesn't ruin everyone in the same way, and people respond to it differently. But when you mentioned that the book was in present tense, the, the book moves sometimes in a single paragraph between present and past. And I wanted it to feel like the experience of living with trauma itself, that for people who have been abused often, there is no real dividing line between present and past. It's all jumbled up in one. And this idea that you can ever solve or fix or repair or smooth over, however you want to put it, what happened to you, what was done to you, is for some people an impossibility. There were times when I'm thinking, I was thinking reading the book and being aware that I could not put it down, that all I wanted to do was put it down because of the intensity of the horrors that Jude was going through. How was it for you to write those sequences? Jude's sections were always the easiest to write because his internal logic is very consistent and he never really changes. And his parts came to me with the most fluidity. He was just a very um, easy character to imagine. Of course, as a writer, you you ache for your characters when they're going through something horrible. On the other hand, as a writer, when the writing itself is going smoothly, it's an ecstatic sort of moment. You just feel like if you're a surfer, that you've caught that long wave and it's carrying you all the way back into shore. And so even when it's difficult, there's nothing more thrilling than knowing where you're going with something, even if it's into treacherous waters to Did carry you out the metaphor. Did you do a lot of research on how abused people survive? Not really, because, you know, all of us either know someone who's been abused or has been abused. And there is a really depressing sameness, I think, to the way a lot of people cope and have to respond to, to abuse and, and to trauma. You wanted to create a fairy tale mm -hmm. feel to it. Why did you want to create a fairy tale feel to A Little Life? This book doesn't read like experimental fiction, but to me it felt like an experiment. And when you do allow yourself the possibility of veering away from what you should do, it gives you a great deal of freedom. And, you know, this book feels, I think, out of time and out of step with a lot of contemporary fiction, which I think tends to be more formalized and a little distant and a little sometimes ironic and a little cool. And this book is not that, you know, it's, it's, it's excessive, and it's extravagant, and it's self-indulgent, and it makes big mistakes. I think after a certain point, you, you have to allow yourself to take those sorts of risks and to risk making a big old mess. Otherwise, it's not worth it. The character of Jude goes through some terrible things mm. and comes out of it cutting himself. What prompted you 
to bring in that element? And what kind of research did you do for the cutting? Well, you know, it's something that obviously women do much more than men. And I say obviously because, you know, men, when they're upset, tend to explode outward in rage and women, you know, are generally taught to suppress it. And that often leads to self-harm. But many more men than I previously thought also cut themselves or are self-injurious. I felt that for the character, it made sense given the way he was raised and the way his guardian needed to control him that he would be given this, he would be encouraged to do this, to cut as a way to stuff down his anger. And so it seemed very right for him in this particular instance. But I didn't do any research for the cutting per se. The way that Jude responds to the things that are done to him seemed very natural to me and very organic, the sort of logical responses that a child would have when trying to cope with circumstances that they don't have the context or intelligence or the knowledge or power to control. Were there any points where he was moving in a direction that you sort of weren't sure you wanted him to move in? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, one of the things that I had to do with Jude is, you know, I do think he's a lovable character. I wanted him to be someone who convincingly inspires love from his friends. But I think he's also a deeply frustrating and maddening character. And one of the things I had to do was really let him be unlikable in a lot of senses and unsympathetic and frustrating and the sort of character who makes the reader want to reach in and slap him. I mean, you know, there's a certain point where you just want to say, stop doing it already. And he just simply can't. And I think that made sense. You know, I think often for people who have been abused, they seek it out again and again and again, and they're unable to stop themselves. They are sometimes aware of it, but they're sometimes not, and they just can't do it. And so I wanted that to to echo what it's like to love someone who is very difficult to love and who keeps doing things that you know and probably they know they shouldn't be doing. Jude is an addict. He's addicted to injuring himself. And like all addictions, his addiction is is self-harm. Like all addictions, it's about control of the body, about having so little else in your life that you feel is yours. And so even if the power is destroying yourself, it's a kind of power that is difficult to give up. Well, you mentioned love, and I understand in an interview you said that you wanted everything slightly exaggerated, including the love. But at the same time, you have to create a character that engenders this kind of love. Did you have a little bit of difficulty in trying to make sure that we understood the love? I think that this is a book in many ways in which you really have to succumb to it. If you don't want to succumb to it or you just can't, it's not going to be a satisfying book. It just isn't. I mean, I suppose that can be said for many novels. But I think especially when you have a character like Jude, you know, as readers, as people, we want our characters and our humans to be logical and we want them to respond to logic. And he doesn't. And so that was the trick of it, of of hoping that he would be an understandable character, someone who was difficult and who you wanted to slap, but you understood why he would never stop doing the things he was doing. As opposed to the character of JB, the artist, who struck me in some ways as the most realistic character. Right, right. Because we understand him. We get him. Right. And, you know, he's the character who's I think most like I am, and I have a, I had a lot of fun creating him, and I hope that comes through in his sections. He was very easy to write as well. But he's also the character who is really asked to change the most and does with a, a great deal of stumbles along the way. 
And Willem, the actor, who is the most selfless character in the book. In ways, but I think he's the sort of person who enjoys thinking of himself in a certain way and enjoys thinking that life will turn out in a certain way. And there is a kind of selfishness to that, to being so hopeful that you become blind to what's actually happening in front of you, to someone you love. The fourth character of the quartet, Malcolm, who is an African-American architect, at the beginning of the book, the characters all seem more or less equal, and then less and less, it shifts over time. He's the one character who virtually disappears. When you began writing the book, was that in your mind, or did it just... It was in my mind. You know, I wanted this book to sort of begin as a little bit of a trick to the reader. You know, it starts off feeling very much like the post-collegiate New York novel, and then it becomes something else. The buildings are on this, as you mentioned. And, you know, Malcolm's disappearance from the narrative, I, I wanted that to feel like what naturally happens with our close friends from college. They drift away, they remain sort of central in our emotional lives, but our day-to-day interactions with them diminish. And I think that's completely true of, of this particular character. He sort of takes the most conventional path of the four of them in terms of his personal life. And while they continue to be fond of one another, there's simply less contact. And that is what happens, um, even with the tightest of friends, or tightest circles of friends. And, you know, I think that this is a group of friends in this book who are very pleased of thinking with thinking of themselves as a group of friends. I mean, there is a sense of self-congratulation on all of their parts that, you know, look at us, we've come so far, we're all still friends. But, you know, I think you can still have that feeling and, and simply not speak to someone for, you know, weeks or months or years even. Hanya Yanagahara, was there any interest at your end in fleshing out characters who basically just are names like Richard, the artist, or Asian, or black Henry Young? <laughs> well, I knew very much who they were. And I think that one of the things that you do as as a writer is that even characters who are minor parts in, in the life of the reader should be major parts to you. And you should know much, much more about them than actually makes it onto the page. And the same is true with your big characters. I mean, with Jude, I knew where he would stand politically on certain issues. I knew little things about what his favorite foods were. I think that the reader can always sense that fullness or the lack of fullness, even if those details don't necessarily make it into the final cut. And then there's the professor, Harold, and his wife, Julia. Where Julia stands out is that in a novel written by a woman, she's basically the only female character. There's one other female character, but you're right. It's it's a largely woman-free landscape, and of course, that was a deliberate decision. I, Why? I wanted it to very much be about the emotional lives of men, and the emotional lives of men are different from the emotional lives of women, not because I think there's something inherently different between the sorts of things, you know, love and affection and solace that men and women want, but because women are allowed to express more of it and men aren't. And so when you have a group of characters, in this case men, who are limited in some way by society and society's expectations of them and things they are and are not allowed to feel and say and think. It's a great gift because you're working within a contained space. So I wanted originally to have no women at all, but it was too much artifice even for the life of this book. So Julia only has about four or five lines. They're sort of important lines, but she has very few. And Anna, I guess, is the other one. as well. But I also, you know, thought that Jude, given his past, women would be benign and, you know, basically 
not people of no interest, but he is more interested in men because men are the ones who hurt him. And so, of course, you know, we always go back to the people who hurt us most. You think? Yeah. Because there's a sort of thrill-seeking aspect to it to begin with and a sort of challenge. I think that there are people who have been damaged and keep going back to the source of damage. Hanya Yanagahara, we have all of this story of abuse, both present tense, him abusing himself, and past tense, which is his being abused. Balanced off against that is Vogue style. These people all become very wealthy, all become very successful, and they jet over to everywhere. And that, again, would have been deliberate as counterbalance to Jude? Sort of. New York is a city that, and this is where I think the New Yorkiness of the book comes in, where success loves success. And I certainly know of of friend groups that, in a sense, fetishize their members' success. You know, they'll you'll sit down and they'll say, oh, well, this is my friend so-and-so who owns a gallery, and this is my friend so-and-so who's a theater director. And you can tell that there's a certain kind of relish in the idea that here we all are, and we're all successful. And that, I think, is something that may not be particular to New York, but the bragging about it is. You know, I know groups of friends like this, and I wanted this group to have tangible success. And then for Jude, I wanted it to mean really nothing for him. You know, but money is an important part of the life of this book. Money buys him comfort. It buys him an easier way of life. It was important for me that he have these sorts of advantages and have those advantages be helpful to some extent, but not to the extent he needs. Well, when they go on vacation together or just go for a meal, it might be in Paris or London. And of course, given inequality these days, this is very rare. It is very rare. And, you know, that's another element of the fantasy of this book. I think that there are so many things in this book that are fantastical and that are not necessarily reflective of the sort of society at large, but it is reflective of a micro society. You know, when I was writing this book, I was watching a lot of girls and girls, of course, has come under a a lot of attack for being, you know, a a racially monolithic show. But to me, it is brilliantly accurate because if you are a young girl from a liberal, a young woman from a liberal arts school working in a certain industry, living in a certain neighborhood in New York, you're probably not going to know any black people. You know, we, we tend to stick to people that think like us, that look like us, that vote like us, that read like us. And if for this group of characters, it's the same thing. It's the specificity of a micro community. And in these micro communities, the way these characters live, how they spend, where they shop, how they eat, how they move through the world, their sense of privilege is very accurate. I know many, many groups of people like this. And it's you're right, it's not reflective of the world at large, but it is reflective of a certain slice of New York. There are some people who say this is the great gay novel because the characters, given the context of having read the book, I don't want to go too far into this, but the characters, there's so many gay characters in the book. Is that another reason to make it a microcosm To me, there's only one gay character in the book who identifies as gay. And when I turned this in, my editor and my agent both said there are so many gay characters in this book, but there aren't. And again, if you work in certain fields in New York, if you run in certain circles, everyone you know is going to be gay. I mean, I was so surprised when they brought that up because to me, it didn't seem like there were many gay characters at all in this book. There were certainly fewer than are in my everyday working life. I thought the great gay novel thing was, first of all, a wonderful compliment. You know, because if you had said to me, 
oh, well, this white guy wrote this a great Asian-American novel. I would say, no, he didn't, you know? So right. there's a great generosity of identity among some of the gay men who have read the book and reached out to me. And that's been a real honor, actually. One of the things you do in the book is you kind of throw the idea of gay versus straight out the window. What is Jude? Right. What is Willem? Right. And at the same time, by virtue of Malcolm and JB and Jude, you throw the idea of who is black and who is white out the window as well. And so as we get deeper into the novel, we have to sort of forget what is what. And, and it becomes very clear, I think, with the character of Willem himself, who is a straight man in a gay relationship. Right. Obviously, we're much more, I don't know if the forgiving is the right word, but we allow women to have same-sex relationships and to move between same-sex and, and heterosexual relationships with much more ease, you know. And with men, we do that so much less often. And I think part of what has led people to think of this as a gay book is because it's about tenderness between men and it's about love and it's about the kind of love that the two of the characters have, which I won't spoil, isn't quite a friendship without sex or romance, but isn't quite a sexual relationship either. It's a romantic relationship, which I think is a third category that men feel less encouraged to access. And these two characters spend a great deal of their time trying to, I think, jam their relationship into one of the two existing models. And it doesn't really work for either of them for various reasons. And in the end, they end up going a third way that feels natural and specific to them, although it's really not that specific. It's just something that we don't hear discussed that much. This sort of liminal relationship that borrows elements from a sexual relationship and borrows elements from a non-sexual friendship, but is grounded in something else altogether. Willem's career, did you, in your back of your mind, have actors who were kind of Willem there? Not really. I, you know, I did a lot of research for this book. And for Willem's career, I mostly talked to people who are on the other side of the camera. And they had very unkind things to say about actors. But they offered a great perspective into how actors, by necessity, had to think of themselves as they move through the world, how, you know, it's, it's a career and an industry in which you're constantly getting rejected and being taken at face value, which is a terrifying thing. And I wanted him to be someone who I think is is much more secure and sort of true to himself, whatever that self may be, than he gives himself credit for being. You captured a couple of things really well, the idea that he thinks he can move through the village and no one will recognize him, which as it turns out is exactly what David Bowie did and we didn't right, know it. Right, right, exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And the other element is the fact that he doesn't really realize he's famous. He has to be told he's famous. Did you find that in your research? I think that, you know, Willem is the sort of character who likes to think of himself as a down-to-earth guy. And when you're determined to think of yourself as a down-to-earth and humble person, you know, there's a little bit of egotism involved in that. And, and you are able to overlook evidence that's staring you in the face. But I wanted him to be someone who wasn't obsessed with fame and the idea of fame in the way that, say, JB is. And, you know, a lot of people are completely obsessed with the currency of fame. But there are just as many people, even in this particular age, who aren't. They're obsessed with something else. It's not recognition. It's 
I think for Willem and for other people as well, it's the sense of being invited into some sort of fold and being told that they belong. Not that they belong to the whole world, but that they belong to a small group of people. One thing I noticed, um, maybe I'm going off in a strange direction here, but uh, for people in the trees, you created essentially a culture you know, a fictional culture right. and got really heavy into it, almost like a Middle Earth. Right. And in a way, you did the same thing here. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because both of the books are about tribes. You know, in the first book in People in the Trees, there was a literal tribe on an, an imaginary island. And there was also the tribe of the laboratories that the, the protagonist works in. These highly specific, narrow, I suppose I should say, difficult to access worlds. And in the same way, this New York that these characters move through, which is less a New York of geography and more a New York of psychographics and the mind, is another tribe. It's a small, specific, closed, snobbish clan. And it is a bit of sociology, I think. Character of Andy's a doctor. Did you do research into medical profession? Because there's a lot of medical material in A Little Life. I did. I did research for all of the characters. I did the most for Jude. Uh, you know, I talked to someone that represented every stage of his career. So I talked to a law student. I talked to a clerk. I talked to someone in the U.S. Attorney General's office. I talked to three litigators. And I talked to a litigator who was becoming a law professor. And then I gave the book to the law professor and had him read all of it, all of the highlighted parts about the law. And then for Andy, yes, I talked to an orthopedic surgeon and also to my father, who's a doctor. You know, one of the things I'm interested in is, is how the body fights so hard to really heal itself, and then equally how a body falls apart. And so I talked to both of them about, you know, if you had injuries like Jude's, how would the body react? You know, what can the body withstand? How would it try to heal itself? What would you have to do in this circumstance? And that informed more of the plot points than probably anything else. When you're working on the book, a lot of the suspense in the novel has to do with discovering exactly what happened, parceling out information. How difficult was that to give just the right amount, not too much or too little? I had a pretty good sense, you know, because I knew how it was going to unfold. So after the first section, I knew it was going to be a very long book. And I knew more or less the pressure points of revelation, I suppose. I had the sense that kind of at four points in the book that the dial would turn another half, you know, click to the right and would get darker and darker and darker mood. So I, I did know how to parse it out and I didn't want it to feel like a tease or a fan dance, but I wanted it to feel when it came inevitable. I think when the reader gets to the first big set of revelations, my first reader at least said, I kind of suspected this was coming. I kind of suspected the details of this. The shock you should be feeling is dread because you sort of know what's coming. We hear a lot about the doctor before right. we actually meet him. That's right. toward the end of the book. We learn more about his other abusers early on. Did you do research in the life of abusers as well? No, not really. The section you're talking about with the doctor and Jude, which comes, um, as you said, late in the book, I wanted you to be a reliable narrator, but that's the one part in which I think the reader should feel that he's sort of slipping away from himself, that although he's trustworthy, there's something that's becoming so fevered and manic about his recounting that really, I suppose, reflects his current mind and, and the way that he was being forced to make decisions, impossible decisions at a young age. 
I understand that the title, A Little Life, comes from the idea that all life is small. Is that correct? Yeah. You know, I mean, these are characters who I think particularly in the sorts of circles they would be running in in New York, there is a sort of, I think, thinking that there is such thing as a big life versus a little life. But I think all life is, is equally small and equally consequential. What brought you to that title? Did it just come out of I the I always world? had it. I always had it. And I sort of thought people would make me change it, but they didn't. Tanya Yanagahara, let's go back a little bit and talk about your career. You went to Smith College. You became a publicist. Had you wanted to be a writer even then? Yes, and I was lucky because I had parents who really encouraged it. They thought it was a perfectly reasonable thing to do. But, you know, I mean, I think like a lot of people who want to write fiction, I went into book publishing because I thought it was the closest thing. I think there are many other things that I probably should have done instead. There's something torturous about being in book publishing when you want to write fiction. But it's also an education that I, you know, draw upon today. So was your first gig at Vintage? No, it was actually at Ballantine, which is a mass market publisher that's part of Random House and Sales. And then I went to Vintage as a publicity assistant. And then I went to Riverhead Books, where I acquired a single title. And uh, it was made clear to me that I wasn't going to advance in the industry. And I went into magazines. You became an editor. How did that happen? This was in 1999 or so. And at the time, there were so many new content-based websites. They were desperate for editorial help. And I joined one of them, a venture called Contentville, which was supposed to be a rival to Amazon. And it was owned by this guy named Steve Brill, who also owned a magazine about the media called Brill's Content. I really took to it immediately. I, I love the sorts of people that work in a magazine. It's a very different pace than book publishing. It felt like sort of working on my high school debate team. Everyone was very smart in a kind of facile, quick-witted way. No one read fiction, and you had to edit text very, very fast. Skills I've learned as a magazine editor, mostly about structure and pacing, are ones that I think I use regularly when writing fiction, and they're not the most glamorous of skills, and they don't get discussed as much when you're talking about crafting a novel, but they're tremendously important and very helpful. At the same time, I understand in an interview you said in 96 you began thinking about the the first novel. Yeah. You were writing on the side, but... I was, but... You know, it took such a long time, mostly because I was lazy, and years will go by when I didn't touch it. I am glad for all sorts of reasons I waited. When I look back at the earlier drafts of The People in the Trees, you know, I was 20, 21, 22, and I was so consumed with trying to guess at how I thought a man in his 70s would sound. The language is Baroque. It is a 20-year-old trying to guess at what a 75-year-old would sound like, and it's not good. And for other reasons, there are great advantages to waiting. You know, I wasn't published for the first time until I was middle-aged, and by that point, I knew who I was. I had a career of my own. I wasn't depending upon being published to give me my identity, and I think that's often an important thing for young writers to remember. What was your relationship with Condé Nast Traveler, just as an editor? It was just as an editor. I I wrote a lot, but I wrote a lot of the kind of pieces that in magazine editing we called service writing. So these are just the sort of little bite-sized nuggets saying, you know, go to this restaurant and order the blankety-blank, and here's the address and phone number. And, you know, I mean, I'm not going to be so grand and say they're like writing haikus, but it demands precision, and it's, it's about the authority authoritative and clear and concise relaying of information to the reader. Obviously, I don't use that in in my fiction, but it's a different kind of writing that I find relaxing and satisfying to do. Did you actually go to those restaurants? Yeah, I did. 
back in the day of Condé Nast Traveler when, again, this is print publishing was robust, where we didn't take any freebies or discounts on anything. So we paid rack rate and full price for everything. And we always went anonymously. And that was a good education as well in its own way. But you also had the expense account then. Yes, but it was a very cheaply run publication. So how did you deal with going to the more expensive places? So you would go, but you would eat like cliff bars. You would go stay in a very nice hotel, but then you would eat granola bars for dinner. So there was an expense account, but you were judicious about it. You could only expense laundry when you're on a trip every nine days. So you would go, you would have your granola bars, you'd be staying in a $2,000 a night hotel and, you know, washing out your clothes by hand and, you know, hanging them up. So there were certain sacrifices you made to, to, to try to see these places the way that the reader would. Well, what about a restaurant? I mean, if you go into a high-end restaurant, you sort of have to order Yeah, something. you do. You do. But I didn't do that many restaurant reviews, so I can't talk to that as much. So you did mostly much. hotels? Yes. And yes. they sent you all over and you'd have your granola bars and yes. stay in these fancy suites? Yes. Yes. Not always granola bars, but <laughs> we were careful about budgets. Did you go on to the Times from there? I did. So I actually just started at the Times in June. I haven't been there that long. I was at Traveler, and then I went to town and country for a brief period, and then I came back to Traveler in a different capacity, and then I went to tea uh, about six months ago, seven months ago. Meanwhile, people in the trees came out, and as you said, it came and went. However, it got some great reviews. Is it selling in back orders now? Not really. You know, I don't read reviews, so I have no idea if it got good reviews or not. No, it's still really not selling anything. It's a very different book, I think, than than this one is. And it feels very much to me like a first novel, you know, when I occasionally look back at it. And an experiment. But I think the thing that both of these novels share, I don't have an MFA. And I, I think that both of them are books written by someone who didn't know the rules and therefore didn't feel any sort of fear about breaking them. As opposed to knowing the rules and deliberately breaking them, which is not necessarily a good thing either. But it can be a better skill. You know, I think that when you look at artists who have their MFAs and have really been taught how to classically paint, and then they can really take the foundation from that training and completely upend it, it's, it's a brilliant thing, but just not who I am. And so you don't think that working as an editor in the magazine field for two decades isn't the equivalent of an MFA? I think it teaches you different skills. You know, I think it teaches you, obviously, you learn less about character development. You learn less about sort of emotional thrust. You learn more about, as I mentioned, the organization of a piece, about pace and tempo, because that is what defines a magazine article more than anything else. I mean, not that the the other things aren't present in a good magazine piece or in good journalism, but one of the things I work with on the pieces I do at work is really how to move the reader with, with a strong hand through the arc of a story. And it is terrifically important, and it's something that I enjoy doing, and I enjoy doing both in magazine pieces and with the books. And you're going to find this funny, but the same words that you're using back when I first started doing interviews were the words being used by older writers who began in the pulp magazines. Oh, I love that. Well, I can understand why. Both of the books I've done are narratively driven books, I think. And narrative is something that has always mattered in entertainment and in, you know, pulp fiction and mass fiction, but also in glossy magazine journalism. 
What about the idea of voice? Was that something that cropped up or is that just an MFA word that kind of just goes right over your head? No, it's something I thought about a lot. And when I was talking to my editor, I told him at one point that the most important thing was to have a consistent logical universe that you create for the book, you know, whether that logical universe is inside the head of someone who um, is keeps reacting the way he does because of, of things that happen to him, or if it's because that character is, you know, a self-justifying pedophile who wants to make an argument for himself. And I still believe that, that that's the most important thing. But the, the other important thing, of course, is that there has to be a distinction and individuality of voice. And that's not always true in, in, in certain types of journalism. But it, it absolutely is in fiction. It's one of the things that distinguishes fiction from other types of writing, I think. In some respects, you're your own Willem, you know, going from character to character. If you know your character, then I would assume it becomes a little bit easier to be the voice. Yes, yes. Hanya Yanagihara, the book came out, and since it is in its own way an experimental book, the assumption is it'll come out and die because right. that's what happens. Right. But that isn't what happened. Were you shocked? Very. And I remain shocked. You know, this it wasn't a foregone conclusion this book would get published. I wasn't under contract for a second book. I turned it in, and, you know, my editor... I think that this is not typically the sort of book he'd respond to. He didn't quite know what to make of it. And it's it says something about, I think, how sort of um, generous a reader he is, that he is able to, even after decades of editing, say, I don't really understand what this book is. I don't really know if I like it. But there's something about it that compels me to publish it. The first book hadn't sold well. They didn't really know what to do with this book. I just happened to be lucky that the house hung in there with it and that sales reps read it and that booksellers read it and librarians read it. But but you're right. I mean, for most books, it's that's not a foregone conclusion at all. It is only luck. In some respects, it's a compliment that a couple of the reviews were so angry and negative because most books don't get reactions like that. You know, I haven't read the reviews, so I can't comment on it, but... I never wanted to write a book where you just read it and thought, oh, you know, I don't really have anything right, to say. Yeah. I mean, because any work of art should be in some way provocative. And I don't I don't mean that in the sort of popular way that we use provocative. I mean, it should make you feel something. And I have no control over what it makes you feel past a certain point. But it is a compliment when you make people engage with the book as something that they either feel is speaking directly to them or they really feel is repellent in some way. And certainly the works of art I love, not necessarily books, are the ones that are divisive in some sense and that do make you discuss what it is that's before you. Apparently your favorite author is John Banville. Is that correct? I love John Banville. I've interviewed Um, him a couple of times. Have you? Oh, yeah. I mean, nobody writes more beautifully than he does, I think. Um, And I love Ishiguro and Hilary Mantel as well. Hanya Yanagahara. Now, A Little Life is out. It's out in paperback. Now, have you begun work or thinking about your next book? Not really. A little bit. But, you know, with, with both of these books, by the time I sat down to actually start writing, I had a great deal of it thought out already. And I suppose that if I'm anywhere in the preparation for a third book, it's simply thinking actively about thinking about it. 
Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>